morning. It's good to see everybody. Glad you are here. Want to encourage you, if you haven't already, um, download our app because it's got all the scriptures. It's got the outline, iOS and Android as well as you can sign up for camp, give, do all the cool stuff. So if you haven't done that, I encourage you um, to do that. We're in a series and we've been looking at power. Is it good or bad? Really, it's this cosmic battle for who's in control, who's going to be God. And we learned last week it kind of displays itself in the beginning when it comes to rest and whether or not we trust God enough to rest and allow him to be in control. And this weekend we're going to look at Genesis 6 and it's right before the flood. And the Bible has a lot to say there. And I said a lot of it on Saturday at our Saturday service. So we talked about who are the sons of God? Are they demons? And then we talked about the fall of Satan and the role that that plays in this cosmic power struggle for who's God. Now, we don't have enough time this morning to kind of get into all that. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you can go to the webpage and uh, that teaching from last night, which is, I guess, the extended version, the long play. I don't know. Um, and, and see that. I, I, I want to start this power Battle kind of begins with um, uh, two different paths. How many of you ever, anybody ever played King of the Hill when you were little? All right, well, a few of you. Now, I got two younger brothers, but they're almost my age. And my dad was a, uh, you know, in contracting and stuff. So we always had these big piles of dirt. And really all it means to be King of the Hill is who can be on top of that big pile of dirt and keep the rest of the people away and anything goes you can put it's a fighting game okay we always ended up fighting me and my brothers because you can push them down you can throw dirt clods my middle brother when he gets really mad he used a two before and you know it just who is going to be in control who's the king of the hill now I noticed many of you didn't raise your hand so you probably never played it with a dirt pile but I'm pretty sure that probably some of you have played it or do play it at home with your spouse you know, who's the king of the hill? Who's in charge? Who's in control? If you're a parent, you're going to play it with your kids because your kids want to be king of the hill. They want to be in control. So you're going to have to, you know, determine what, how, how to combat that, I guess. And I believe that maybe more than we're aware, we play this game with God. That we wrestle with whether or not God is going to be the king of the hill. God is going to be in control or we are going to be in control. It is, I think, the temptation most often used by the enemy. And so as a result, there are two paths that we actually have to choose um, to go down. The first one is the one that our adversary took. I talked about it um, last evening, but it begins with pride. And that pride leads to envy and rebellion. And rebellion, according to the scripture, always leads to destruction. All right? Now, that's one path. The other path that we can take begins not with pride, but the antithesis of pride, which is humility. And humility leads to a sense of gratitude and really a submissive heart. And uh, uh, when we're willing to submit or live with a submissive heart, according to Scripture, it always leads to being raised up. 
All right, now let me show that to you real quickly in 1 Peter, all right? So you got your Bible, uh, they're going to put it up on the screen, but 1 Peter chapter 5 and uh, verse number 5. Skipping all this stuff. 1 Peter 5, 5, it says this. Now, Peter's talking to a group of leaders, and they're being persecuted. And he says, in the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. For God does what? What's it say? God what? You guys can read, right? God, O-P-P-O-S-E-S. God opposes who? The proud. God opposes the proud. You know what the word opposes mean? It means that God sets himself up against. God goes to war with pride. And the moment you and I become prideful, then God goes to war. Now, the reason that pride is so dangerous is because God has created you so marvelously. That's what Psalm 139 says. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's masterpiece. So the danger and what the enemy came to Adam and Eve with, what he came in Genesis 6 with, in Genesis 11 when they built the tower, is, is to look at you and you have skill and you have talent and you have ability and you have an intellect and you have a resource. I mean, all of these things that you are, the Bible teaches God gave you. They are not the result of you. They are all him. But the moment that you and I embrace those as if they have something to do with us, we become prideful. And when we become prideful, then we play king of the hill with God about who's actually in control. And it always leads to destruction. It led to the destruction of our adversary in the Old Testament. When you see how Satan came in to being and the fall that happened to him, and it happens in people's lives every day. You realize this is the number one way in which the enemy tempts us, and yet how often do you hear us really talk about it? When's the last time you talked to a friend or a spouse about, man, pride, and it's sneaking into your life? Seldom. And it's interesting that the very thing the enemy used is more than anything else to bring destruction in our lives is the thing that we don't talk about very often. And we don't talk about humility very often. See, humility is not the lack of confidence. Humility is understanding from where your power comes. Right? When you and I look at the guy on the side of the road that's holding up a sign that says, hey, I need some help, and that for that moment, you think to yourself, man, if he just got a job or if he worked as hard as I would, he would be. The moment our heart begins to go in that direction, the moment we begin to judge them and compare ourselves as better, the Bible calls that pride. Now, that doesn't mean that that gentleman or woman doesn't need to get a job. What it does mean is that whoever and whatever you have is not the result of you, but of who he is. And the moment you begin to embrace the fact that you have what you have because of who you are, here's what the Bible says, that's pride. And the moment you and I become prideful, we will move towards rebellion. We will move towards the being king of the hill, which always leads to destruction. And the Bible's really, really clear about this over and over again in many ways. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughtiness before a fall. Now, our adversary, Satan, went that route. If you want to see that, you can watch the video from Saturday. But Jesus went the route of humility. 
Philippians 2 says, although he was equal with God, he considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And there are seven demotions that are found in the second chapter of the book of Philippians. And humility doesn't mean, oh, I'm a worm, I can't do anything. The word humility actually means to constrain. In other words, it means to submit. It means to place under. It's not the lack of power. It's the submitting of power. Jesus wasn't lacking power, and that's the reason he went to the cross. No, no, he humbled himself even unto death. All right, and if you go to verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5, remember in verse 5 it says God opposes the proud. But if you go to verse 6 in uh, Philippians, or excuse me, in 1 Peter, it says, So humble yourself under the mighty power of God, because at the right time he will do what? He will do what? Let's just read it out loud together. He will. Yeah, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. That's good news. He will lift you up. When will he lift you up? When you humble yourself. When you submit to him being God. It really is a cosmic power struggle for who's going to be in control. And while I don't think that any of us would see ourselves as Eve or would see ourselves as those in Genesis 6 thinking that we're gods, in reality, that's what the battle is. Because only God is the king of the hill. So how do we, how do we walk this path? How do we walk this path? I mean, what are decisions are we going to make that determine whether or not it ends in destruction or ends in God raising us up? If, like Peter said, how do we dress in humility? Because we get dressed every day, right? I mean, some of us put on a little more than others, I guess. But we get dressed every day. How do we dress ourselves in humility? And I want to give you three things real quick, okay? And I think along the way, we're going to answer a question um, or give, I guess, some insight into... Well, we'll just, we'll just wait for it to come up. How do we dress ourselves in humility? Here's the first thing that we have to do. We have to know who God is. We have to know who God is. And here's what I mean by that. God is sovereign. You know what that means? That God is in control. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And he's everywhere at one time. See, the more clearly we see God, the bigger he becomes. And the bigger God becomes, the smaller we become. Your greatest temptation will be to be God. That will be your greatest temptation because every other sin, and remember the word sin means to miss the mark. Every other sin is the result of the desire to be God. It is the, it is the result of rebellion. And the scripture even says in one of them, I think I put in your outline, that God looks even differently at, at, re at rebellion. Now, the one we're going to learn humility from is John the Baptist, okay? Because here's the tension in the scripture. How many of you have ever heard of Daniel? You ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den? What happened to Daniel? The king threw him in the lion's den, and what happened? He didn't get eaten, did he? No, in the morning the king went out there and he was good and he was great and the lions are just kind of laying there, you know. Have you ever heard of Shadrach and Benny? That's the VeggieTales versions, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, so what did he do? 
He threw them in the fiery furnace. You know what the Bible says? Is that they walked out on the other side and they didn't even smell like smoke. Don't you love those stories? Right? You love the stories of where God, he comes through. And he comes through in the way in which we would expect him to come through. Have you ever heard of John the Baptist? You know what happened to John the Baptist? He lost his head. He was cut off by an evil queen, and he died in prison. And so in the scripture, there is this tension. There is no doubt that the Bible teaches that there is blessing that God desires to bless us, that he created you marvelously, that you were created to win. You know, for I know that God says that I have a plan for you, and it's a plan for you to prosper. That is in the scripture. There is no doubt. But there is also no doubt that John the Baptist, who was doing what God asked him to do, dies in prison. So how do you reconcile those two? How do you put those two together? And I think until we dress or walk in humility, we will continue to struggle and to try to almost explain away John the Baptist and in doing so miss, I think, what God is really trying to teach us, which is, first of all, that he is in control, that he is the creator of the world. James said that all good things come down from the Father of lights, and so he is the giver of all good things. Now, in John chapter 3, here's what's happening. John, if you don't know John the Baptist, the Bible says that he ate funny stuff. He ate, you know, locusts and honey, okay? He dressed weird, and he did his ministry out in the middle of nowhere, okay? But people came by the hundreds. They came out in the middle of nowhere to hear him preach, and he would say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he would baptize them. Religious leaders came, people came. Well, one day... His cousin, Jesus, comes. And he's walking on the shore. And John looks over and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah. And Jesus walks down into the water and he looks at John. And he's like, Hey, will you baptize me? And John's like, I can't baptize you. You're the Messiah. I can't even untie your shoes. And they have a little convo. And John baptizes him. And the scripture says that the Spirit of God comes down like a dove. And you hear a loud voice from heaven that says, that is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus begins his ministry. Well, the folks who were following John the Baptist, his boys, his close friends, they come to him one day and they're like, John, you're not going to believe what's happening. You know that Jesus guy that you baptized? Everybody's following him. The one that you said that was the Messiah, they've all gone to his ministry. They're all going to his services. What are we going to do? I mean, we, we, maybe we need to go on television or you need to write a letter. Or, I mean, what, we, everybody's leaving, John. What, what are we going to do? And listen to what John says in John chapter 3, verse 27. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. So the first thing that John says is he says, you need to know who God is. He's sovereign. In other words, there is no one going to hear Jesus that God didn't ordain, that God wasn't sovereign in. God, um, just like James, it all goes through God's hands. Verse 31, he has come from above and he is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak earthly things, but he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. 
John says, guys, God is all power. And I would say this to you, okay, that there are probably some of us here today that if you were honest, you're angry with God. I mean, you might not put it that way, but the truth is, is, I mean, you've been obedient in an area of your life and it hasn't worked out the way you thought. You've been generous and yet you are struggling right now financially and that doesn't seem fair. You've lived a sexually pure life and yet you find yourself alone. And I don't know what it is, but you're frustrated at God. And the reality is, is when we find ourselves frustrated with God for something that hasn't happened the way that we thought that we should, it's because we're not seeing God big enough. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. It's because we don't know God. We read about him and we understand and we use the words. He's all in control and he's all powerful. But we really don't know. We don't really see him maybe as king of the hill. So we have to know God, but secondly, we have to know who you are not. You have to know who you are not. Louis Giglio wrote a teaching a long time ago, and he entitled it, I am not I am. Okay, I say again, I am not I am, because I am, God said, was his name. And so what Louis was saying is, is that I am not I am. I am not God. You have to know who you are not. Now, remember, they came to Jesus. I mean, they came to John. They said, John, this is bad. This is not good. They're all going to Jesus. Now, let's go right to the next verse, verse 27. He says, you yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I know who I am not. I am not God. I am only here to prepare the way for him. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and it is the bridegroom's friend He's simply glad to stand with him and hear the vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at the success of Christ. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John says, I know who I'm not, and I'm not God. I'm just uh, excited about the success that he has because I came to point to him. And the fact that people are going to him is actually what you know, I, I, I came to do. I know who I'm not. I'm not God. And that is the temptation for all of us, is to be God. Here's what I mean by that. I think we are tempted, when things are bad, to take control. When things are bad, when things aren't going the way you and I had hoped or thought, it's to take control. And the other thing I wrote down is when things are good, we're tempted to take credit. Here's what I mean, when things are bad... I think the two areas maybe that are, uh, we struggle the most with are, are relationships and money. And so when I say things are bad, what I mean is, is that you're trying to run after God relationally and you're living a pure life sexually according to what the scripture says. Because the Bible is very, very clear on the way we are to live sexually, on what our sex lives are supposed to look like. And so the temptation is, is that when, let's say you're living that life and yet you find yourself alone and every time you try to get close to someone and they want to take it to another level and you're unwilling and you draw a line and you say, no, man, they eventually walk away. Maybe not that night. It's not that, you know, clear, but it, the relationship seems to fall apart. So relationally, things are going bad and you begin to wonder, am I going to spend the rest of my life alone? What is the greatest temptation in that moment? It's to stand up and be God. 
It's to now hope that God will understand why you're going to be God for just a short time. I mean, just with this one person, because God, I really do love them. And if I really love them, then aren't we really married? And we play all these different kinds of words games. But it's important for you and I to understand, here's what you are doing. You are being king of the hill. You are making yourself, I am making myself God. And that is that cosmic battle for power. And when are we most tempted to do that? When things are bad. Because I better take care of it, right? Because isn't that what you're thinking? If I do it God's way, then I'm not going to get what I desire. So in order to do it, I need to be God. We do the same thing financially. The Bible, again, it is so clear. Psalm 23, God says this, or, or the psalmist says this, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need to succeed. Okay, that's what, that's what it says over and over. It talks about how God will take care of our financial struggles, that the same way in which we give, so we also receive. He'll meet our needs. And so we step out, let's say, and we're trusting him in that. We're being obedient in our tithes, returning to him a percentage of everything that he gives to us. We're living generous lives out in the community. But all of a sudden, things go bad. There's a struggle. And in that struggle, whether it be the kids got to go to school, I lose my job, or whatever it might be, you know, the mortgage goes up or whatever it is, all of a sudden, what's the most tempting thing to do in that moment? It's to stop being generous, isn't it? It's to stop tithing, stop returning to God. So, so you, know, you understand what that is, right? It's stepping up and saying, I need to be God here. Now, again, we try to get God to understand why we're going to play God for a while. We try to explain to him, well, you got, you got to, right, you want the kids to go to college. You love college, wisdom, and you love kids. And the only way in the world for these kids to be able to go to college is if I'm not obedient in what the scriptures has to do when it comes to tithing or I don't live a generous life. When, yeah, and, so you, and so we try to explain it away. But it's important. It's important to understand that it is our pride that causes us to believe that we can do better than what God says he will do that causes us to take control. And you just need to understand, here is where that always leads. Because it's rebellion. We are rebelling against what? The king of the hill. Because he is declared in his word. So it's important to not only know who God is, but I have to get real honest about who I am not. And in the same way, when things are going well, it's so tempting to take credit and to become judgmental about those who are around you. Why are you where you are? Why don't you need to be generous to those who have less than you? Because if they worked as hard as you did, they'd have as much as you do. If they would have paid the price and went to school like you did, then they would have. And it's very easy and very sneaky and how so slyly the enemy gets us to embrace that we are who we are because of what? What you have done. You have become who you have become because of the hard work that you put in. I'm not downplaying hard work or personal growth. All of those things are important, and I have taught on all of those things. But we cannot walk away from the tension that the Scripture says, everything I am, I am because of who he is. And the moment I take any credit for any of it, I have become prideful, which will lead to rebellion and eventually destruction. Because now, rather than taking care of the poor, I judge the poor. And rather than being generous, I judge. It's so easy. 
so easy that when things are going well, to take credit, it's your commitment, your intellect. And then we start to think what? God owes me. God owes me, right? I mean, the moment you start, decide that you're gonna spend more time in God's word, isn't it easy to start looking down on those who aren't spending as much time? And if they knew as much about God as you and I do, well, bless their hearts, right? It's just, it's just so tempting to start to believe what? That now God owes you. He owes you because you're faithful to be here. He owes you because you're faithful to tithe. He owes you because you share your faith. Oh, no. That's pride. And it's the number one strategy of our adversary to get us to be king of the hill. Because he knows. Because the enemy, our adversary, Satan, has experienced it in his life. And so he knows where that leads. Now, the last thing that I want to share with you is not only do we know who, need to know who God is and know who we are not in order to be humble, to constrain, to remain under, but we also have to know our purpose. And in knowing our purpose, we're going to begin to under, understand, I think, one of the great tensions that are in Scripture. First of all, have you ever asked yourself that, why are you here? Now, it's clear from Scripture that you didn't fall out of a tree and you didn't wash up on a shore millions of years ago. The Bible says that God knit you together in your mother's womb. He was involved in that. The Bible says that you are a masterpiece. So if you're marvelous and you're a masterpiece, then why are you here? Why does your heart beat? Why do your lungs take in air? John the Baptist understood his purpose. If we go back and look at verse 28, remember when the boys came to him and said, Jesus has taken all your people. He says, you know yourself how plainly I told you. I'm not. I know who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. But I do know who I am. I know my purpose. I am only here to prepare the way for him. John was able to remain humble and not take over the king of the hill because he knew his purpose. My purpose is to point to him. So if people are going to him, then I am accomplishing that for which God created me. And in order for me to live out my purpose, John said what? I must decrease and he must increase. I, I need to get out of the way. Because all of us were created to glorify him. And in order for him to be glorified, then you and I have to be willing to move out of the, out of the way. But what happens when the purpose that you have on your life doesn't travel down the path that you thought that it would? In other words, you're, it's not turning out the way you thought that it would. You're not getting the opportunities that you thought that you would. What happens when life doesn't do what we thought that it would? Right, Because that's the great tension of Scripture. The great tension of Scripture is that God is good and that God is great. That God works all things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And yet, over 50 people lost their life in Orlando just a few hours ago. How do you reconcile that? How do we put those things together? And what happens in our world and what happens in our own lives? Because it happened in John the Baptist's life. And I think it gives us some insight. Well, this might not answer all of our questions. It does give us some insight because John doesn't, John doesn't end up with this incredibly large ministry sitting at the right hand of Christ, ruling the world. No, he ends up in prison. 
And so he gets his boys because his circumstances cause him to be tempted to be God. His circumstances cause him to say, this is not the way I thought it was going to be. I'm doing what God asks me to do. And now I'm in jail and the queen wants my head. So he calls his boys together and he says, you need to go talk to Jesus. And you need to ask him, is he the Messiah or should we look for another? Because I don't want to spend my life in prison and lose my life if he's not the Messiah. So you sense this temptation, this wrestling match in John for who's going to be the king of the hill. And so that's what his boys do. They go and they ask Jesus. And they say, John wanted us to ask you, are you the one or should we look for another? It's found in Matthew chapter 11. And I want you to see the response of Christ. Because you would think Jesus, all-powerful, he says, John is the greatest who has ever lived. Jesus said that about John. So what do we think that Jesus would do? Go rescue John. Or just speak it. John, come out. You know? There's lots of examples in the New Testament where there were uh, the disciples or apostles that were in prison and they, the, you know, there was an earthquake or different things happened and they were just set free. This is John the Baptist. No greater man has ever lived, Jesus said. But how does Jesus respond? Well, Matthew eleven four, Jesus told them, you go back and you tell John. You tell him what you have heard and what you have seen, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Now, what Jesus told them to go tell John sounds very familiar to what Jesus read from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue the first time that he taught about what he was there to do. So he says, you go back and you tell John. And what Jesus is doing is that he is trying to get John to see the bigger purpose of his life. Because he says, you go back and you tell John that what John was created to do is happening. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the dead are raised, and the gospel is being preached. So he is trying to pull John beyond the limits of these 80 years to the picture of eternity. He's trying to pull him up. He's trying to extend uh, just how big God really is. The big purpose, John, of your life, it's happening. Even though you are in prison and even though you will lose your life. See, we often don't see the whole picture or understand. Now, that's true in regular life, right? I know when Steph and I were in Little Rock and things were going crazy and we're like, man, maybe we should have never left Paragold. And we, 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 didn't, we couldn't see it all. Couldn't see South Florida. It never entered our minds. I know when our kids were young, there are things that we would do as parents that they never understood. That while it hurt today, there was blessing in tomorrow. The scripture says that the pain and suffering that we go through on planet Earth doesn't compare to the blessing that we will experience in heaven. Here's what I put in your notes. Our perspective of this world is often too big and our picture of eternity is too small. See, when you and I think of reward, we think too often of this planet. 
That the reward we seek and the reward we desire is to happen while our heart beats upon planet Earth. And there is no doubt that the Bible does teach that there are rewards on this planet. There are blessings upon this planet. But that is the small aspect of what God does in our world. See, we tend to make God small, that God is about right now and that he is only concerned with right now. But the reality is, is the Bible gives a totally different picture that the greatest of things happen in eternity. That forever and ever and ever and ever. And that these 80 years are small in comparison to that. Hebrews 13, 14 says, for this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. In other words, it's kind of like a house that you rent. You don't, you don't put a pool in to a rent home, a rental home. You don't, you know, have a new yard put in and build a garage on and put an extra room and paint all the, you know, all the rooms and put a new roof on. Why? You don't own it. You're not going to only be there for a few years. And the scripture says in the same way here on planet earth, it's just rented. This is not your home as a Christ follower. This is not where you will spend eternity. This is a fallen world. This is not the world that God even created, and it's not the world that will come into the future. And so he's always trying to pull us up so that we can see the world through bigger eyes, so that rather than shrink God down to a watch or a house or a car, to enlarge him into eternity. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, it says, by doing this, he's talking to Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy about being generous. And he says, by doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for what? For the future. Not for today, but for the future. So that they will experience what true life is. You know, one of the things that I did... Um, even last night, is I thought, well, let me just read to you a few of the scriptures of heaven. You like my glasses? I love my little. All right, I've been looking for years. Okay. I know they don't look cool, but they're awesome. All right, let me just read to you really quickly a couple scriptures about heaven. He says, Jesus is speaking. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trusted in God, trust in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I'm going to come back and get you so that you will be where I am with me. In Revelation 21, 3, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. All of these things are gone forever. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, it says, and this is what the scripture means. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In Revelation 21, it says the 12 gates, talking about heaven, were made of pearls. Each gate was a single pearl. And the main street was pure gold, as clear as glass. And the city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is, it, is its light. And the Bible over and over again uses different terms and different ways to try to describe to us exactly what heaven is. Why does he do that? Because he's trying to help us understand that all that we see now will make sense in, uh, through the lens of eternity. Through the lens of eternity. And that no matter how hard we try, and some of us even work so hard to try to make today's suffering and somehow making today's suffering God look good as if he needs us to do that. Now, I will say this to you, that Jesus doesn't ask anything of us that he himself didn't experience. And he experienced this very thing in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at what he says. 
He says, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now, why does he tell us to run with endurance? Because, well, the race can sometimes be difficult. How do we do this? By keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy, where is the joy? It's in the future, isn't it? He's not experiencing it today. It's in the future. The joy is awaiting him. So if it's awaiting him, then he's not experiencing it. In other words, he, the joy that's awaiting him, he endured the cross. The cross was endured. It wasn't celebrated. And the reason that the cross was endured is because the joy was on the other side. In other words, Jesus understands what it's like when we look around this world and we see all of this pain and it makes no sense to us. And what Christ tries to do is he tries to pull us to a bigger perspective of eternity. And he says, I know the Bible never hides the tragedy of this world. And I believe that if, if God were trying and somehow to pull the wool over our eyes, he would try to make things look better than they are. But in John 16, he says, in this world, you're going to suffer tribulation. But he says, be of good cheer. Why? I have already overcome this world. This is not your home. There is an eternity. And you have access to that eternity only because he came and endured the cross and in doing so reconciled us unto himself. And it says, now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. So it's exactly what we talked about, humility. He made himself nothing. And then he submitted. Let me, let, me, let me show it to you one other place here. It's a scripture, if you've hung out in the church, you might be aware of it. I don't know that if you've ever looked at it in this context. It's, well, it's found in Mark chapter 8. Look what it says in verse 31. It says, Jesus talking to his boys, his disciples, apostles. He says, and Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. That he's going to be rejected by the elders, rejected by the leading priest, rejected by the teachers of the religious law. He would even be killed. But that three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about these openly with the disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Peter pulls him aside and he says, Jesus, no, no, you're all powerful. You're God. You're the Messiah. You're going to set up your kingdom and you're going to rule the world. You, 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 you can't, if you're, if you're God, then you can't suffer. If you're God, then how in the world are the Romans going to put you on a cross? Jesus, you're wrong about this. You're all-powerful. You're all-knowing. You're everywhere at one time. You spoke the world into existence. There is no way you're going to die a horrible death on the cross. You must be wrong. And how did Jesus respond to Peter? Then Jesus, in verse 33, turned around, looked at his disciples, and he reprimanded Peter. And he says some really strong words. He says, get behind me, what? Satan. You are seeing things merely through a human point of view, not from God's. What does he say? He's saying, Peter, you are trying to be God, which is an act of rebellion. It's a cosmic treason, so get behind me, Satan. What was Peter trying to do? Peter was trying to look at the purposes of God through a human perspective and saying, there is no way that an all-powerful God can suffer. And Jesus said, you're wrong, Peter. You can't see the complete picture. That's only the work of the devil, so you got to get behind me. 
And then he turns and he talks to the whole crowd because a bunch of people come in. This gets their attention, verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join the disciples, he said, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. What's he saying? You can't be God. You cannot be God. No matter what happens on this planet, no matter what turn your life takes, no matter how much you don't understand, with every, with every challenge there will be this temptation to be God. He says you cannot be my disciple and be God. But you must take up your cross and follow me. If you try to be God, if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. Just like Satan did, just like the enemy did. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And then he asked the question, what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world? In other words, you get everything you want on this planet, but you lose your soul. And, and we see it all the time, don't we? Don't, don't we see people who have all the things that we believe would actually make us happy? And yet they don't have any peace in that. They don't have any joy in that. You can see the, the, the lack of joy in the way in which they live their lives. Paul said in 2 Timothy, but you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. God wants to pull us to a bigger perspective and understanding of eternity. So as I wrestle with this, because there is this tension, God does bless on this planet, and he did create us to win. And at the same time, we don't all win on this planet. That's the truth. Hebrews 11 said that, gives an example of all these people who saw great things in their life, and then it gives a list of people that did not, and it says that they did not receive their full reward while on earth. And you can't deny that. And if you try to deny that in times of trouble, you will doubt and go for being king of the hill. You will determine that maybe God is not who he was, said he was, and you will become your own God. So in your life, what areas are you maybe wrestling for power? Is, you ever wonder why is salvation so difficult? You know, Christianity is the only religion in the world that's not do. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about what's been done, what Jesus did. But, but you know why the Bible says that broad is the way that leads to destruction and small is the way that leads to life? It's because of this word right here, humility. In order to trust Christ, you have to be willing to admit, what? I'm not God. I can't be good enough. I can't do enough. I can't know enough. It's all him. And I have to trust him. There's a wrestling match in some of our lives to be God. Others of us, maybe it's baptism. The Bible says the first thing we do once we trust Christ is to follow him in baptism. Doesn't save us, but it's a picture to the world of what God has done in us. And yet some of us trusted Christ long ago. And yet we have taken over the position of God in this area of our lives. We have decided that for this reason or that reason that we right now don't need to do what God has said. Listen, please understand that when I do that, I'm being God. I'm fighting for power. Forgiveness is another area where we fight to be king of the hill. They did wrong. They hurt us. 
And God tells us that we're to do what? We're to forgive them. Why is it so hard? Because it takes humility to forgive, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, I want them to hurt like I hurt. Because what they did, they shouldn't have done. I, 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 I want to be the assessor of penalty. And yet the scripture teaches that I need to allow him to be God and assess the penalty in his time and in his way. Even scientists tell us that if we hang on to unforgiveness, that we're the ones that get hurt. And yet so many of us struggle to forgive. Because it's hard not to be God. Some of us will spend all of our lives struggling financially simply because for all of your life, you will be king of the hill in that area of your life. You will never trust God enough to let him be God. I ask myself this question, and I wrestle with it. Is if all of my reward were in heaven, were in eternity, would I serve God with the same passion, the same zeal, and the same commitment? Would you study his word with the same passion? Would you have the same commitment? Would you run after him with the same passion? Would you share the good news with the same kind of love if all of your reward were in eternity? And I ask myself that question because my temptation is to make this world too big and eternity way too small. Would you bow your head? With your heads bowed, I, I, uh, I don't know where you're playing king of the hill with God. You and him, you know, you're pushing him to the side. Oh, you've explained why and you hope that he understands. Just like Eve. Just like Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. It's about power. It's about who's going to make the decisions and who's going to make the calls. Maybe you just need to trust him and make him the master, the CEO, the Lord of your life. Ask him to forgive you for doing life your way and commit to doing life his way. Maybe you need to follow him in baptism and just say, God, I'm tired of arm wrestling you over who's in control. Maybe you need to commit to living a generous life. I, I, I forgive someone. I, I don't know. But you know because the Holy Spirit teaches us. You know. Father, I, I pray that all of us would stop wrestling with you for who will be in control and who will be God. We don't understand it all. And there are times when it doesn't make any sense at all. And yet you are still God. And may we, like John the Baptist, continue to believe, continue to trust, and continue to follow. So that ultimately we point the world to you. And in doing so, you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, thank you, guys. Mm -hmm.